If we understand that sales is the most important part of your business, it's the only thing that generates revenue. I call it the revenue column and the expense column. Salespeople are in the revenue column, everybody else is an expense. Then it should be critically important to you to understand what your customers are thinking, why they make the decision to buy from you, why they make the decision to buy from the specific person that's selling to them. What is the psychology around that and how can you capitalize and maximize on that so that you can get higher close ratios and higher ROIs on your marketing dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Stay Hungry podcast. Today I've got a special guest, Brian Will, will be talking about the psychology of sales. Brian, welcome to the Stay Hungry podcast. Yo, thanks for having me, man. I love the code breaker thing you got there in the background. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just everybody thinks that we do code. That's the issue. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. My first podcast had a completely different name and people kept saying, what is your podcast about? I thought, but it's so obvious to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Stay Hungry podcast. Everybody thinks we're a diet podcast. So, you know. <laughs> so, Brian, for the uh, uninitiated, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, yeah, my background uh, has been entrepreneurial my whole life, basically. Started my first company when I was 21 years old uh, in the landscaping industry. Built it into seven franchises. Moved into insurance. It's a weird transition there. Sold that company to a venture capital group. Uh, it went public and then back private. Did another one in the insurance uh, technology space. Um, that one we sold to another venture capital group. And then I did a third company, which was internet-based, internet marketing, which we sold to a private equity firm uh, back in 06. And then did consulting for Fortune 500 companies and sales and sales management. Wrote several books, a couple Wall Street Journal bestsellers. Uh, own a chain of restaurants today that I don't really work at, but I do love getting free food and drinks. Uh, have a real estate company, and then I got involved in local politics, and I sit on city council in my hometown. So that's the uh, two-minute version. A quiet life. <laughs> well, I'm ADHD, so I've always got to have a couple things going on or my brain doesn't know what to do with itself. Oh, fair. Okay, well, that's thrown me, because my first question now is what kind of food do the restaurants serve? So we are, a, I call it an upscale sports tavern, and so... As we learn things in any business, one of the things I've learned is that people like to go to places that are fun, mm -hmm. and sports taverns are fun. Um, and then the other thing, this is a weird thing to learn in restaurants, is we have the most comfortable bar seats you've ever seen. So our objective is for you to come in, sit at the bar, and not leave for two to three hours and keep spending money. And you got to do that with comfortable seats and I fun love things that. to do. I love that. So the UK doesn't have sports bars. Really? I mean, where what, you guys watch football in the pub. Okay. And, pub. and it's not okay. the same. So like, um, when I come to the States, I, I always find a sports bar because you, you prop yourself at the bar. There's multi screens. Yep. You can watch different sports at the same time. And yeah, it's two or three hours of yeah. light entertainment. We've got yeah. 30, 30, 55 inch TVs playing different sports. You can sit there and listen, just pivot your head and watch, you know, three different games at the same time. Yeah, there's maybe like two of those in London and none anywhere else in the UK. I'm thinking there's a business opportunity it's here. Wild, right? It's wild. Like <laughs> for a nation that loves sport, we don't have that. That's interesting. And huh. yeah, so like I, I love soccer, Formula One, boxing, UFC. If you want to go and watch that, you have to go to like, and a place where they have like a big screen and everybody just gets outrageously drunk. 
you know, I, of course, we have a soccer team here in Atlanta that did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to a few games. I'd never been to a soccer game prior to this. And the most amazing thing I found when I was there was nobody ever sat down. The entire yeah. stadium, you know, 30,000 people, and they stood up for the entire game. It was, I mean, they're the wildest fans I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, imagine that on steroids, and that's UK soccer. So, yeah, <laughs> our season starts on Saturday. So, it's well, get, get ready. Crazy. So, uh, back on topic, obviously, you've had a lot of success in multiple industries. How has your understanding of psychology played into that? You know, uh, as I like to say that sales runs the world and any business with no sales isn't in business anymore, right? So if we understand that sales is the most important part of your business, it's the only thing that generates revenue. I call it the revenue column and the expense column. Salespeople are in the revenue column. Everybody else is an expense. Mm -hmm. So if we know that sales drives the world, sales drives the company, sales generates your revenue, then it should be critically important to you to understand what your customers are thinking, why they make the decision to buy from you, why they make the decision to buy from the specific person that's selling to them. You know, what is the psychology around that and how can you capitalize and maximize on that so that you can get higher close ratios and higher ROIs on your marketing dollars, et cetera, et cetera. So too many salespeople think that that sales is just about talking or it's just about benefits and it's mm-hmm. not. It's understanding what the client's thinking and why they make decisions and that will increase your sales, which increases your ROI, which is increased just profitability. And the company succeeds so it's all about psychology i love that i love that so sign on the wall behind me uh, is our marketing agency and my biggest gripe is generating loads of leads for a company and them doing nothing with them so yeah. i guess the psychology of sales is not just understanding the psychology of the buyer but it's understanding the psychology of your sales team to get them to do what you need them to do it is, you know, we, the, the first thing we teach salespeople, we call these the, the rules of success, right? And, and there's a three whys and a win in every sales process. And, the, and, the, and they are, why is the customer calling you and looking for your product? Whether you called them or they called you, why are they interested in your product? And you need to know that like clear as day. Mm-hmm. And then why should they buy that product from you, right? As an individual person, like why you, why not the person down the street? Why should they buy it from your company as opposed to any other company out there? So I need to know the three whys. Why are they shopping? Why your product? And why you? And if I know those three things, then I am 50% of the way towards figuring out how I can get that person closed. Then we go to the when, which is when are they actually shopping? And then we go into the the objections that they're going to have and how to overcome them before they have them, right? We overcome objections before they have them, not after they have them. And if we can build a sales process and a script around that, by understanding what the customer's thinking and why they're thinking it, then our chances of closing go up a thousand percent. I mean, I can take organizations and increase their close ratios by fifty to hundred percent very, very quickly if they if their sales teams have never really studied the psychology behind, you know, why they need to do the things they do and why the customers think the way they think. Sure. So what would be a typical thing in a sales team where you would identify this team don't understand the psychology of their customer base? So we take sales teams and we break them down into into uh, what I call the 10, 70, 20, mm-hmm. right? 10% of the people on a sales team are your superstar rock stars. They're just amazing. And they, they can sell probably three to one over anybody else in the organization. And then you've got the 70% in the middle. These are the This is the bread and butter. These are the people that are going to make the majority of your revenue in sales, but they're never going to be the superstar. Mm-hmm. 
And then you got the 10% at the bottom that we're going to continually having to get rid of and roll over because we can't seem to get them to do anything, right? So we take this top 10% and we say, this is what's possible, right? We know it's possible because 10% of our sales force is doing mm -hmm. it. We know 70% will never do it. But if we can take what the 10% are doing and start figuring out what it is and how it is and why it is and start taking those principles and we build it into the 70%, then we can increase their sales at incremental levels, right? So it's understanding the product and why it's, it sells at the top echelon of the sales force and then bringing that stuff down into the rest of the team. Now, we never expect an entire sales team to produce at, you know, what we call top closer levels because there's psychology in the person as well, right? People sure. are never going to sell above their personal needs. They're never going to sell above their self-worth. They're never going to sell above what they need to pay their bills at the end of the month. That's just the majority of a sales force if you've got a large one. Um, but I can then do other things to incentivize and, and whatnot. But I can make the middle group better by literally implementing specific things. And we do that through we do that through specific and general scripting. We do that through understanding, you know, the process and the product and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I've seen sales forces and call centers where the top people are 15% and the bottom are at two, right? What am I doing with a person at a 2% close rate when I've got, when I know it can close at 15? So I got to get either get rid, I got to coach them up or coach them out. So depending on the product and service, we do that different ways. There are some generic things we do in every situation, but, uh, then we'd make it specific to the product or the company as well. That's a really interesting phrase, coach them up or coach them out. So something that <laughs> nobody has ever talked about on this podcast, but it's such an important part of being a business owner, coaching people out of the business. What does that involve? And it's funny because, you know, I own a chain of restaurants and we tell people either you're going to learn or we're going to promote you to guest. <laughs> Same thing. Right? We say, <laughs> and, and forgive my language, we say you're on the bus or fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know what your audience wants to hear, so I'm trying to be really nice here. <laughs> now, what was the question? I completely sorry, forgot. You sorry. threw me off of that one. So it's the, we, I've never discussed with anybody on the podcast about coaching people out of the business, but to a, yep. a business owner entrepreneur, it's actually a really important part of your business journey. What does that look like? So, and again, I'm going to break this back to something we started with. The only revenue being generated in your company is by your sales force. That's it. Managers are an expense. CEO is an expense. Marketing is an expense. Revenue is generated by salespeople. And so what we do, if we take an organization, a sales organization of any size, is we do what's called bottom-up P&L, bottom-up profit and loss build. And I take every single salesperson and I turn them into an individual profit and loss center. Right. Sure. Which means I take all overhead, all OPEX, I divide it by my number of salespeople. Then I take their variable costs, which is their salaries, commissions and marketing dollars, put that into their their P&L. And by doing that, I can look at each individual person and tell them whether they make a profit to the company or not. So if I've got a person that's got a fixed OPEX of use simple numbers, fixed OPEX of 100, variable of 100 including their salary and they generate $300 in revenue, then I know I'm making a profit of a hundred bucks. Yeah, sure. But I promise you, if you break every single salesperson down, you'll find out a person with a hundred overhead, a hundred variable is generating $180. And that means the more they sell, the less they, the less you make, the more you lose. Mm. So if you will do that bottom up P and L, you can build a picture to the sales team's management, to the CEOs of the company on what each individual person is contributing and whether or not they are profitable or not. And if they're not, then we take it down to the sales team and we say, listen, 
Joe. Uh, I'm sorry, but you're not making money for the company. And you've either got to change these things, get this sales number up, use less leads. There are variables we need to tweak here that we either need to get you where you need to be so you're turning a profit or I don't know what to tell you. I can't have you here losing money for the company. And that way it's very clear cut, black and white. It's not subjective. I'm not making a personal decision. It's not whether I like you. It's not your gender. There's nothing other than you're literally not making a profit for the company. Mm. And I can't keep you if you're not doing that. So here's what I can do to help. Here's how I'm going to coach you up. Here's what you need to do. And if you'll do exactly what I tell you, it will work. But if you don't, and we can't get that number up over the delta, the break-even delta, then it, you don't fit in the company. And I typically will lose 20% of a large sales force when I go in by doing that bottom-up P&L. And by the way, when you lose 20%, that means you have less fixed overhead, you have less marketing dollars, and your sales really don't get hurt. Because remember what I said, if, you, if, if this person can sell 10 and this person sells 2, I'd rather take all the leads I'm giving the yeah. two seller, give it to the 10 seller, and I now have more revenue off of less overhead. Everybody wins. Except for but you got to build it from the bottom up, not the top down. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the person we coached out. Yeah. How, because I know, knowing some of the businesses I've worked with, that would terrify them. How do you coach the business owner to understand that that is a necessary I was going to say evil, but it's a necessary kindness. You have to do it. Sure. Um, Listen, Joel, I know your organization's doing well and you're running about an 8% profit margin. If I could increase that to 12, what would that mean to you? Change my life. Yeah, it changed your life. Now, if you will allow me to do what I do, I will show you how to do that. I will show you the black and white numbers. And then I'll let you decide if you want to go down the road I want to take you, which is potentially less people, more revenue, less less marketing dollars, more profit. I can show it to you in black and white. It's not subjective. It'll be black and white when I show you. Yeah. Yeah, they've got no option. Well, if they... Yeah, their option is, no, I'd, I'd really like to keep the folks around that are losing money for me. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's when you start asking, well, why am I here? So, I, I get it. <laughs> I get it. So, that's kind of leads into tapping into the business potential and also the the entrepreneur's potential so when you're coaching them working with them on a one-to-one or one-to-many basis how do you start to identify their potential individually or for the business well i i guess individually because unless the the organization is huge their individual potential will still have quite an influence on the potential of the business. Sure. So this gets into, you know, what I call, you know, I go back to my five keys of success, mm. right? The five keys of success, one of them are you need to understand that your business is where it is because of you. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like to say you are who you are and who you are got you where you are. And if you want where you are to be something bigger, then you're going to have to change who you are because who you are is performing at the level you're performing at. Yeah. Unless you're in a hockey stick growth right now, if you're, if you're stagnant, then who you are is where you are and that's it. You need to, if you really want to do this, be willing to check your ego a little bit and allow somebody else to come in, a coach, mentor, advisor, consultant, and show you the potential of the company and then show you how you can get there. So, and that, that's an ego issue. A lot of entrepreneurs have big egos. Yeah. If you're willing to check that ego and let me help you, 
your business will go up. Everything about you will go up. Your profits will go up. You'll have a bigger, better company. But it's all about that ego first. Always, yeah. always, always, always. Yeah, that that introspective is so powerful and yet one of the most difficult things to do as a business owner, particularly if you already feel successful. Well, most entrepreneurs, because they are laser focused on what they do, we call it looking at a 30 degree angle at the world, mm. right? They're looking, this is their world right here, where a coach slash consultant comes in with a 180 degree view, because we've seen so many other businesses doing the exact thing, right and wrong, mistakes, successes. So we have a bigger view that's unbiased and unemotional. Yeah. that can come in and say, I know you're here, but I'm telling you, after having talked to a hundred other companies, this will work for you and here's why. And personally, I'm very tactical in my coaching. That's why I get into the specific numbers. I'm not going to give you a subjective answer. I'm going to say, you know, here's the math, right? This is all we have to do and the math will work. So if you'll let me help you. And by the way, if they've already got me in there, they're probably willing to let me help them. They've identified there's, there's room for improvement. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. So in terms of that, you go in, you speak to the owner, you realize it's a good fit, that there's potential in the business. And then day one, you speak to their sales team and it turns out their sales team are just very ad hoc. They're scattergun. They mm -hmm. call the leads that they feel like calling, depending which way the wind Typical. is blowing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what's, what's step one for like helping the sales team identify the leads that they should be speaking to? Individual P&L. I'm going to go right back to that because yeah. I'm going to build a math formula that tells you everything about you as a salesperson. This is how you perform. This is how you perform in relation to everybody else in the organization. This is your potential because we know the potential is there. I'm not telling you to do something that nobody's doing. I'm telling you to do something that other people are doing. So this is where you are. This is your potential. My job is to get you from the here to there. If you're willing to let me help you, I will make you better and you will make more money. That's a fact. Unfortunately, there are people that say, I don't really want the help. I don't need the help. I'm not going to take it. They're probably going to be coached out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we we talked to our clients about how even Usain Bolt had a coach. You know, he, he might be the world yeah. record holder at the 100 meters. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Apple Computer, I always use Apple Computer as an example. I love this example. I tell people, look, Apple is one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the most profitable in the world, and it's run by a guy named Tim Cook, mm -hmm. right? And Tim Cook as what's called a board of director, just like every other major company in the world. And the board of director comes in every three to six months and they sit down with Tim and they say, hey, Tim, talk to me, what's going on? And he says, Foxconn, China, unions, product, technology, you know, blah, blah, blah. These are all the problems. And all these board of director people who are from all different industries, by the way, none of them are building iPhones. Mm -hmm. They say, based on our experience, based on what we've done, what we've seen, we make these suggestions to you Tim Cook takes those suggestions and he uses them to move Apple forward. So first we know that Tim Cook has people helping him run his company. What most people don't know, however, is the board of directors also personally pay for an executive coach for Tim Cook. Yeah. So not only does he have a board, he's got another dude that rolls in there and, and talks to him every month or two about all the other personal things that happen within Apple and how to deal with them. So I, I love talking to entrepreneurs and saying, look, 
Tim Cook's got to be a pretty smart guy to do what he does. If he needs a coach, what makes you think you don't? Mm. Yeah, I love that. Because I I often get laughed at by some of our clients because I have seven coaches. And, yeah. And they're like, isn't that excessive? And it, I, it might be. It might be. But I enjoy the different opinions and the different experiences and the accountability that that brings into my life. It's like a personal board of directors you've built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not, yeah. we're not a big enough company to have a board of directors. So instead, and, I and, fly around the world having people shout at me. It's great. Yeah. And coaches are for a reason, and sometimes they're for a season, right? Mm. I call them re- relational coaches. There are technical coaches and tactical coaches. Relational is what's going on in your head, your employees, how to deal with that kind of stuff. Technical is I'm in computers and I need to know how to, a, a guy that knows how to code or whatever, whatever's technical. And then there's tactical. That's what I do, which is really general business sales related, how to read P&Ls, analyze numbers, move your business forward. So coaches have a reason and sometimes they have a season. As I yeah. tell people, if you're, if you're in the one to 10 million revenue range, I'm your guy. You get up into the 50 million revenue range, I'm not your guy. I've never done that. You need to find somebody who's been there, done that, and get them to help you at that point. Yeah, got you. So that's really interesting. Um, what were the three coach types again? Tactical. Relational. 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 Technical. And tactical. Yeah. So that relational one, that- when you approach an entrepreneur who really likes having a relational coach, because that's kind mm-hmm. of, that will involve the soft stuff and let's say massaging the ego for a better a better phrase and maybe some spiritual stuff and all the things around mm-hmm. mindset but you know they need a tactical coach how does that pan out because i can imagine that could be a fun conversation so like for instance i belong to a mastermind group right now which mm-hmm. is more relational in nature and we have a meeting in fact in uh two and a half hours right and we get together and we talk about everybody's problems and what they're doing and do i need any advice we put somebody on the hot seat and we all offer little things here and there that's what I call relational. And those are good. And if yeah. that's what you're looking for, then that's what you need to do. I'm probably not the guy to help you with that. If you're calling me, I can very upfront and say, you know, if you want me to be your coach, like I picked up a new client yesterday and he said, what do you need? I said, send me your P&Ls, send me everything you've got in the organization, send me your sales stuff, send me your breakdown, your org chart. This is what I do. I'm not here to talk to you about whether or not you're going to get out of bed tomorrow and because you're stressed about what's going on in your life. That's not me. Get somebody else to help you with that. I love that. I love that. You see it in sport. Sport's such a great parallel to business for, you know, there's the coach that puts his arm around somebody and uh, maybe they're a little bit shy and then after after a pep talk, they could run through walls for you. There's, mm-hmm. there's the coach that, you know, gets the tactic sheet out and they're moving things on the sheet. And, and then there's, yep. there's the coach that kind of knows the science and they're, and they're, they're hyper-technical, and they can like, yeah. oh, your peptides are down, and you need to drink this drink, and then everything's going to be great. <laughs> and different entrepreneurs resonate with different types of coaches, but it yes. doesn't mean that that's the coach they need. And I love the entrepreneur who, when they have that realization that, oh, I've been going to this type of coach because it's my comfort zone, but actually, mm-hmm. for the growth, I need to go to the coach that takes me out of my comfort zone. How often do you see and that? Hopefully, the coach is telling them that. If mm. not, you might need to question your coach. 
Scrooches sure. can generally be two, but not three in my experience, right? Mm-hmm. Me, I'm, I'm tactical. I'm, I'm not technical. It don't like I own restaurants, but I don't know how to run the inside of a restaurant. Don't have a clue. Mm. So I do restaurant consulting, but it's on the business end of the restaurant, not inside the four walls. Yeah. So I'm not a technical restaurant coach. It's the comfy But seat. I am tactical. Yeah. And then, and then I do a little bit of the relational because part of what you have to do is relational, even in the, ta- even in the tactical, because, yeah. you know, you have to get over your ego, by the way, that's relational. That's a huge one. Mm. There's reasons and ways to do that, right? We talk about personal filters and why you think the way you do and why people succeed and why people fail. That's all relational type stuff. So you can be two usually, but one person probably can't be everything to everybody. Hence, you have seven and I have two. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Because they do different things. Absolutely. So, yeah, obviously I'm in the marketing game, so I have quite a few technical and tactical <laughs> coaches, but it's actually it's the relational ones I struggle with because they bring out shit that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, don't, don't mess with my insecurities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, what drive me on the relational side then because it makes perfect sense that that's one of your two how do you use that in terms of helping salespeople build rapport helping them turn no's into yeses this gets into the psychology part right so it's part technical part relational but let me give you for instance so when we talk about overcoming objections we always talk about the first objection Mm-hmm. What is the first objection that every client has to every salesperson? It's too much. First, ob- the first objection is people generally don't like salespeople. Yeah, yeah, hugely. Sure. See, and when I say it, you're like, well, heck yeah, of course. But the problem is, while you might know it, how are you using that information to overcome that objection in the sales process? Right. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing that as soon as you lay eyes on that client or as soon as you open your mouth, you need to inherently know that they automatically don't like you, don't trust you, don't think you're looking out for their best interests. There is a wall of mistrust between you and the client. Mm. And it's not that they don't really like you personally. It's that you have your sales hat on and they are afraid of you. They are afraid of being sold. Right, that nobody wants to buy something they don't want, overpay for something, get talked into something that's called being sold. They don't want that. And they're afraid of the unknown because they don't know what you're gonna do next. When you're a salesperson, they think you have this sales voodoo magic and you've been taught cheesy sales lines that's gonna make them do things. So if we understand going into the sales process that there's an automatic wall of mistrust between me and the client from the get-go, then we have to build a sales process to try to overcome that objection before we even start moving on. Because if not, we're gonna be fighting that wall of mistrust during the entire sales process. And that objection will have never, you'll never overcome it and your chances of closing go down significantly. So So there's a first objection and that's psychology. What might be a typical tactic? Yeah, so like to explain uh, a massive trend in UK business at the moment, everybody calls a sales call a discovery call. It came over from the Mm -hmm. States and now it's like wildfire over here. And, and now people are trying to change the name of it to disguise what it really is. And it's a rubbish tactic. So mm-hmm. what is the tactic to overcome somebody feeling so, like they're about to be sure. sold to? So you, what do you sell in your business, Joel? Uh, I sell done for you marketing. You sell marketing. Okay. Yeah. So same issue. If I was selling your business and you were the customer, right? And either you called me or I'd call you and and I would do this. This is what I do. I say, hey, Joel, I understand you're interested in uh, some marketing services. Is that correct? Yep. 
Okay. Well, uh, here's what I would need to do on my end, right? In order for us to move forward, I'm going to need to ask you a whole bunch of questions. Okay. And based on the answers to those questions, uh, I'm going to kind of personally make a determination on whether I think that my product and service is going to uh, fulfill the need or take care of what you're looking for. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah, perfect. Okay. So if I make that decision and if I think we can move forward, if I think what I, I can help you, then what I'll do is I'll run over some options for you. I'll give you some pricing and then I'm going to go ahead and let you decide if you think it's something you'd like to move forward with. Now, is that fair enough? Absolutely. And so what did I just do? You turned I got you to a, say yeah. yes three times, by the way. <laughs> You've yeah. agreed that you want to go through the sales process. You've agreed that you're going to get to make the decision, not me. You've agreed that I will make a determination whether I feel like I can even help you. And if I can, I'll give you pricing, I'll give you options, and then you get to decide. And then I always say, is that fair enough? And so what I've done is I've taken away the fear of the unknown. You know exactly what's going to happen, right? And I've taken away the fear of being sold because I'm not going to sell you. I'm going to give you pricing and options and I'm going to let you decide. Now, is mm. that fair enough? And you'd say yes. Now, that wall of mistrust isn't all the way down yet, but it's halfway. Now I've got to do what I said I did, not give you any stupid cheesy sales lines and not try to pressure you. And if I do that, I will start to begin trust, which means you'll start to like me more uh, and my chances of closing you go way up. Moving past that, we get into the connection phase because we have to find a connection between the two of us and there's a whole sales process that goes on. But that's how I get through the first objection. I really like that. I really like that. We uh, trained our sales team to understand all the sleazy sales tactics that are out there so that they can reference them on calls to make people feel more comfortable about talking to our team because mm -hmm. everybody else is, let's say, saying... Uh, so they'll do like, let's say they do a flip back. So they'll be like, take me back to that time when you were really struggling with your marketing. Um, how would working with us solve that issue for you? And I'm like, oh, come on, we can do better than that. <laughs> and so we'll like parody it almost and say, I'm not going to ask you to take me back to a time when your marketing was failing. What I am going to say yeah. is, why on earth are we on this call in the first place? <laughs> yes, the three whys and a win. Yeah. Why, my first question why are you shopping? I want to know why. And I love what you said, because I would even throw in there, hey, by the way, I promise you, I'm not going to give you any stupid, cheesy sales lines today, because I hate people who do that. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that kind of reassurance in the sales conversation, how much of that is playing into the buyer psychology? Because I think a lot of business owners are so focused on the numbers that mm -hmm. they're forgetting that they're dealing with people. So that buyer psychology, if somebody's inquired, they're probably ready to buy. So your job is to not put them off. How does that work? I tell people all the time, you know, I own restaurants. I said, have you ever seen somebody come in, sit down at a table, and when the server comes over, they go, oh, well, we don't want anything. We just want to sit here and watch people eat all day. Mm. They don't do that. You ever got a, bought a car? Nobody goes to the car lot on a Saturday randomly shopping for something they're never going to buy just because they want to be hassled by the car sale. No. When they're coming to you, they want to buy. That's the first thing we have to understand, yeah. right? And so your job is to figure out why they're there, when they're there, or why they're there, when they want to buy. Is it today or later? Why should they buy anything from you? And why should they buy your product? And if you figure those four things out, and again, we, we call it overcoming objections, before they have them. 
Okay. So if you look at your sales team, I bet you could go into your sales team right now and say, all right, guys, let's get a whiteboard. Give me the top 10 objections. And I bet they'd be the same objections from every single person. This objection, this one, this one, this one, usually four or five. Every single time, those are the four. So our job now in the sales process is to build a process that overcomes those objections before they ever have them. Mm. Right. And like, I'll give you a, for instance, have you ever heard? Well, the last company quoted me a cheaper price. Well, then you should have figured that out before they you ever got to this pitch, right? I would say, well, Joel, who are you using now? Well, I'm using XYZ. Well, they're a great company. Why are you looking to switch? Well, because they pissed me off. They did this, 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 and this. Now, later when they say they gave me a cheaper price, I go, but wait a minute. You mm -hmm. just told me they were pissing you off, right? I've already overcome that objection. Or they say, well, you know, they were a little too expensive. Well, what were they charging you? Well, they were charging me XYZ. Okay, now when I get to my pitch, I better understand that I'm not over XYZ, right? Yeah. So we take the product, we find the objections that, are, that happen every single time, we build a process to overcome them. And that way, if they ever get to the objection, we go, no, 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 you told me they pissed you off. So what difference does it make if they were $10 cheaper? 100%, yeah. And particularly in our business, the the number one objection once you get past not liking salespeople is price. It's it's always price yeah. because price is an easy one to throw out. Everybody's been trained by their father or grandfather to negotiate on price. It's like you've done yourself a disservice if you haven't at least queried the price. And um So figure out how to overcome the price objection. Hey, yeah. I, I did one with a company the other day and they were like this was a sales training organization. He says, you know, they're, they'll come in a lot of times in the beginning and say, I can only pay, let's say, $1,000 for this. So by the way, if you can't do it for $1,000, then, then there's not much we can do today. They're trying to pressure you or there's, they're trying to anchor mm. the bottom of the sales process with you. And my response to that is, and if I can't do it, my response to that is, well, I got to be very honest with you. You know, before we spend a whole lot of time together, my pricing starts at 1500 and goes up from there. So if you're set on $1,000, i am not sure there's a lot I can do for you. And what you're doing is you're calling them out on their BS. Yeah. Because if they go, well, no, 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 I can never do it for a thousand. Well, if you can't do it for a thousand and they're not going to do it, then what's the point in me spending 20 minutes pitching you? More times than not, they'll go, well, yeah, well, go ahead and tell me about what it is at 1500, right? Because they lied. Mm. So if I get to set the bar, like uh, just before we get started on the, the presentation, I do want, do want to let you know that we have multiple products and the range of my pricing goes from you know, a thousand to ten thousand. So, I got something in all different levels. Not sure what you're looking at, what you're looking at from a price perspective. But does that range fit in with what you're looking to do, or how much you're willing to spend? And if they say absolutely not, there's really no point in me doing a presentation at that point. Yeah. Remember, remember, you said this in the beginning. You generate a lot of leads, and they don't sell them. We know when we go into an organization that's getting leads generated for them, they probably have anywhere from a 5 to a 15% close rate. Mm -hmm. That means 85% of the leads, they're never going to close. If 85% of the leads are never going to close and only 15% will, I'd rather figure out who the 85% are and not waste time and so that I can go them. back to the 15% that are going to buy and spend my time there. I love that. Too many salespeople think they got to talk, talk to everybody on, I got to talk to everybody and try to sell them and try to sell them. If this person just said, you know, your mother wears combat boots and I wouldn't buy from you if you were the last person on earth. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Let me pitch you my product. 
No, you don't need to do that. Like if you're in the pre the, the fact finding phase and we've gone through our object overcoming objections and we figure out this person's not a client or they can't afford it or they don't fit in our range, I'd say, listen, I don't think we fit in your you know our products aren't going to fit in your range. I'm I'm not sure I can do anything for you today. I'm so not going to waste my time. You've touched on something there, and I think other than two more questions that I ask every guest, this is a really <laughs> good point to explore. So if you're only ever going to convert five to fifteen percent of your leads and if you're high ticket, it could be the percentage could be a lot lower than that. How do you coach the business owner to accept that? Because there's a volume situation there that some businesses really struggle with. That we got a thousand leads and only only a hundred came off, and it's like we'll go and get more leads then. But, mm -hmm. the, but the leads are expensive. Why would we do that? That that kind of rhetoric. Let me ask you a question, Joel. Um, I've got a $20 lead and I've got a $1,000 lead. Mm -hmm. Would you buy the $1,000 lead? It depends how good the lead it depends. is. It depends on what you're selling and how good the lead is. That's yeah. exactly right. Right. This is about close ratio and return on investment on your marketing dollar. Mm -hmm. If you're averaging in an organization, you're giving them 1,000 leads and they're closing 10% and they're making a 15% profit on that. And it doesn't matter how many leads they buy. It only matters what the close ratio is. Yeah. It only matters how much profit they make on it. So, well, we're only closing 15% of our leads. Yeah, I know, but you've told me you're making a healthy profit on that 15%. And that's pretty much the extent of what you're going to get. So that's just the way it works. If you want to make more money, we buy more leads. As long as you stay in your close ratios, you're going to be fine. Now, if you buy more leads and your close ratios slip, then we have a different, different mm. uh, conversation we can have. And by the way, we track, we do that bottom-up P&L I talked about. We track uh, ROI on specific people. We track it on specific products. We track it on specific marketing uh, agencies. So I might buy leads from 10 different agencies and get different close ratios by agency, which begins to tell me what I can pay by agency in order for my mm -hmm. ROI to stay the same, my close ratios. So we do a multi-layer tracking on everything. And if you're running a sales organization and you're not doing that, you are a thousand percent missing the boat on your opportunities, right? So I can buy these leads for $5. Yeah, but they close at 2%. My $10 leads close at 10%. It's 2x the cost, 5x the return. Yeah. And by the way, you're burning a tremendous amount of time in your sales force, wasting time on things that aren't going to close. And your salespeople aren't making enough money, which means they're going to quit, right? So... That doesn't make any sense. And if I build those P&Ls by people, by product, and by marketing agency, then we know how we can laser focus on maximizing every dollar that we spend. Mm. That's awesome. There's so much insight there. Brian, you've been a fantastic guest. I've got two closing questions. One that's very serious, one that's not very serious. Question number one, what's the best mistake you've ever made? Listening to myself early on and not trusting people that knew more than me. It took me 15 years to finally find a coach and start listening. And we went from making, you know, $70,000 a year to a million dollars a year like that. That's crazy. That's a big change. And then I did a podcast and the name of the podcast was take, quit taking your own damn advice. Mm. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Nobody said that before either. That's a good one. <laughs> and then this, this question, everybody gets asked it. So you have to get asked it. People that get interviewed to work for us, get asked this. What's your favorite film and why? Top Gun. Why? Mm -hmm. A, I like winners. B, I'm a pilot. Ex-military. 
Uh, and I just like that overcoming. You're a, you're a hot shot, but but what did he have to do? At some point, he had to check his ego. He had to back down, and then he had to re-engage his brain. And by the way, that happens in business all the time. Mm -hmm. You tell me a business person who hasn't failed, and I'll show you a business person who hasn't been in business very long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something, Everybody fails. Something I said. But the key them. here is you can be a superstar, and a lot of people come out of the gate strong, and then you fail, and somehow you got to dig down deep and get back out of that and go back out there and conquer it again. And that, that's that's life. That's business. The people that don't do that fall apart. The people that do are Maverick from Top Gun. Yeah, yeah. Why do you win? Because I'm willing to fail more than you are. Yeah. Brian, absolutely incredible guest. So many insights. How do people stay in touch with you? Uh, my website is www.brianwillmedia.com. Brianwillmedia.com. And you tell me, Joel, you're, you're a marketing guy. My young staff makes fun of me for saying www. Is that... Am I not supposed to say that anymore? Just say brianwillmedia.com? Yeah, I guess you don't need to say it anymore. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of like wrestling when people say <laughs> WWE. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're cool to say it. I think our audience is still in the WWEs. All right, good. Well, my books, my podcasts, my guest appearances, my coaching, everything's on there. Go check it out. Uh, drop me a message. Say hi. You know, we'll say hi back. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Hey, man, you thanks for having me on the podcast, Joel. It's awesome.